everyone. Welcome to the 420th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have so much to talk about this week. We're going to be talking about, woof, I have the new Aquara millimeter wave sensor that everyone was all excited about over CES, and we'll take some first impressions. We also have a really cool story from Consumer Reports about dark patterns in IoT devices. We've got an update from Influx Data, new new software there. We've got two funding stories, one for physical security and another in the smart electricity space. And then we've got some little bits and bobs on the product side from Shelly, Wiz, Google Nest, and Yale. We're also going to have as our guest this week, Dan Raklowski, who is a writer at Consumer Reports. I know we're talking about dark patterns early on, but he did a really big story that was two years in the making about the data being shared by your smart appliances. So we're going to be talking about that. And he's a nice, smart guy, because I just met him at CES for the first time after reading his work for years. Yeah, he is a totally nice, smart guy. That'll come through in the show. Don't worry. We'll also hear from our sponsor on Logic. And we've got a fun voicemail about smart locks. So let's get this show started with a message from one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is Silicon Labs. They're a leader in secure, intelligent wireless technology, and they've launched their 2023 Tech Talk schedule. This year's Tech Talks include a dedicated technology series for Matter, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and LP WANs in order to help you build the development skills needed to deliver cutting-edge IoT products. You can join Silicon Labs experts and industry leaders for these one-hour virtual trainings created for developers by developers. Although sometimes I'm there too, because they are really helpful. So you can tune in, ask questions, and accelerate your device development today. Register now at scilabs.com. Okay, Kevin. Before we start, I'm jealous that you have the Aquara. Oh, I was just about to say the same thing. I was like, hey, Kevin, guess what I have? I know what you have. Mine's on the way, soon they say, but you have it. And I want it, and I'm dying to hear what you can tell us about it. Yeah, so this is the Aquara FP2 Presence Sensor. And why does the name, why is it so boring? I don't know. But what's exciting about this sensor is that it's one of the first millimeter wave sensors. So it's using disruptions in the millimeter waves to detect movement. So it's basically a more finely tunable presence sensor. It also can be configured to detect falls, and it detects lights. (laughs) Lux levels. I I was not aware of this when I I was like, oh, neat. So I purchased this for $82.99. Actually, I purchased it for less because I had a newly launched coupon. So I purchased this for $82.99, got the coupon, so it came to a total of $70.54 before tax. Where did you buy it from, out of curiosity? I bought it on Amazon. That was where Aquara's website sent me. Right now, it is currently unavailable, which is a real bummer. I'm glad I got it early. I'm sure you are. Dig, dig, dig. Sorry. No, the moment I saw it, I was like, holy cow, this is it. And I bought it. So now that we've got price out of the way and the fact that apparently you can't buy it right now, let's talk about what it's supposed to do, what it does, what it works with. So Aquara is a company that's known for making a hub and HomeKit compatible devices. So they have been around for quite some time. Now, this sensor is HomeKit certified. 
So it will work with HomeKit. I actually put it on using Android though, because I wanted to see if I could. If you've got HomeKit, the installation of the sensor is freaking easy. You scan it, you go. It works. Now, if you have an Android device, you have to download the app and do all that rigmarole. And actually, it was not an awesome process. You ha- it had a soft AP process, which means you had to like alternate Wi. It's old school. Like you had to wait and put it on like a peer to peer Wi Fi network between the device and your phone. Yeah. So not awesome. So what can this do? If you have one radar sensor, which is what I have at this moment, you can monitor a room that's about 430 square feet or up to 40 square meters, and you can divide it into zones. And then when you have presence in any of those zones, it will trigger different automations. So what I set up in my living room was if people are on the couch, this is some crazy assumption, but if people are on the couch, turn off the lights because we're watching a movie. <laughs> no, no, that makes sense. So that's one option that I came up with. It's, it's surprisingly difficult. Like I thought it would be really easy, but it's not. It also has multi-person detection. So if it can detect up to five people, but three is really where it's the best. And it can detect like if multiple people are sitting on the couch, that's definitely a movie. (laughs) And then the other thing that's really cool that I was excited about was fall detection. Now, if you use it for fall detection, you cannot use it for anything else. And if you use it for fall detection, you have to put it on your ceiling in the middle of the room. That is a problem. It is. For a couple of reasons, but the biggest one I think is because this is a wired device. Yes. So there are two problems with it. One, it's a wired device and the existing wire is not really that long. So you're going to have to replace your wire to get it up to the ceiling. Or in my case, I have not tested fall detection yet because I literally just got it and that's next on the agenda. Y'all are going to love, I should take video. <laughs> oh, Stacy falls. Stacy just walking into rooms and going, Froomp. So with fall detection, it's both wired and you're going to have to, I, I'm going to use an extension cord because this is not forever installation, but do know that. And then the other thing is a lot of places where I wanted to detect falls, I have high ceilings. And I don't know if this is going to work on like the cathedral ceilings in my living room. It'll work on the lower ceilings, but not there. Yeah. So they talk about the coverage of this. And if you have it mounted on a wall, you know, obviously you get a wide horizontal range, but they're showing for ceiling mounted coverage, you get the same 120%, but it's like, it says 2.5 to 2.8 meters, which is not bad, but cathedral ceilings, I don't know. You said 2.8 meters? Yeah, so that's got to... That's a nine-foot ceiling. That's not even close. Yeah, that's like like eight yeah, feet. Yeah, that's... I was like... I thought it was like... Yeah. So it's nine feet. So most people actually have 10-foot ceilings. <laughs> well, I do not, but that's okay. Okay, well, if you're in a fancy house... I did. I, I had a fancy house with 10-foot, and we downsized, and we now have smaller because we downsized. That also, like, one of the things I was interested in was stairways, right? It would be interesting to have this on a stairway. But like, I could cover one set of the stairway, but I couldn't cover the other set of the stairway because the ceiling is too far away. Right. The other thing that is kind of interesting is 
it will work in the dark because it's radar and not PIR. Well, PI infrared does also work in the dark, but it can detect these things better in the dark as well. So those are kind of the caveats that I think it's important to know. So I got it online, I set it up, and I set it up with, like I said, my Android phone, and then I hooked it in to Google. So what Google will let me do through Google Home is the multi-zone presence, which is pretty cool, but it will not let me get the lux meters. So it does not allow me to do light. Fall detection is only through the Aquara app, which is another thing to note. So you're going to want your notifications on that app. And I haven't, again, haven't tried fall detection. I'm going to see if there's a way to like move fall detection alerts, like if detected, flash the lights in my house, or maybe send a text. It also will work with HomeKit as a multi-zone presence sensor and as a light sensor. It will work with Madam A as a multi-zone presence sensor. It does both multi-zone presence and light with IFT. And then it also works with Alice, which is this open source smart hub thing. And that only detects light there. So those are the the options. Well, those are the current options. They do mention matter support in the future. And I wonder, will that bring anything across the ecosystem here? Because the light sensor should work across that, no? I don't know. This is not a matter certified device. No, it's not. But they do mention that that's coming. It says it's future proof and matter support. They're able to support much more cutting edge features, sleep monitoring, people counting, yada, 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 and matter support for enhanced functionality. So presumably they're going to bring a firmware update. Okay. I will wait for that. They also talk about an update that's going to offer like pet filtering functionality, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. But I don't know if light sensing is one of the sensors that Matter has today, mostly because we don't do a lot with Lux sensors today. So I have the EVE uh, motion detector, which is PIR and light, and I believe that the Matter support for the light still works. Okay. Maybe I'm confusing it, though, with native home kit, you know, well, it doesn't work with native home kit anymore. That's, you know what, that's a, it's something we should probably test either you can soon or I can whenever I get mine. Well, and I can also go look at the matter spec. I have it downloaded. I can go look for light sensing as part of that. I carry it with me everywhere I go. Um, so the other thing is this is IP rated for installation in humid environments like bathrooms and outdoors under a roof, but do not stick this outside. So I feel like there's a lot here. <laughs> yeah. Can I just clarify one yeah. thing? Because I don't think we made it perfectly clear. We said it was wired. It actually has a USB-C port. So it's not like you can hardwire it easily into your like, electrical system. You need to plug it in and use a USB-C port to power it. That's just a hassle and a half. Yeah, it is. And I'm not sure... Like, again, I think my installation is going to be kind of hideous for a while, but... Right, right. And this is this is for fall detection. But, you know, if you're seriously concerned about someone who falls often, maybe it's okay. But yeah, I would love the ability to, like, actually just wire it into an existing... Yeah. But... At least if you do wire it and you put it up on your ceiling for fall detection, nobody will trip over the wires. Yeah. Because you wouldn't want that to cause falls. Right. Well, I, I figured I would just tape the wire to the ceiling and down onto the wall. 
for my my janky setup. I mean, I actually do fall a lot. Like I don't fall a lot. I I can I faint a lot for like a human being. I spend a lot of time fainting. And so this sort of thing has been really intriguing to me because my family would love to know if I'm by myself and fainting. But mm-hmm. I don't know if my family would love having hideous sensors on all of the ceilings of our rooms. Well, at least they'd get local automations because this does work locally. Yes. Okay. So expect more on this. I'm going to write a full review, but I want to test it out in a bunch of different ways. There's a lot of features to be to be testing. So we'll get there. Moving right along. Let's talk about dark patterns. Consumer Reports did like a really cool thing last week. They did two stories that were worth talking about. One we'll talk about with our guest, but the other is by Kave, what, Kava? I, I don't know how to say the first name, Waddell. And it is, your smart devices are trying to manipulate you with dark patterns. Y'all are probably familiar with dark patterns from reading about the internet. And these are things like forcing you to opt out instead of letting you opt in. It is things like already checking boxes for like, please send me emails for your stuff. Would it be unsolicited ads from your Madam A? Is that a dark pattern? That's just annoying. I don't know if it's a dark pattern, but it is annoying. But it also does could, I should say, it could change your behavior. Like you're going to buy something you weren't even thinking about buying. Yeah, well, that is true. So Consumer Reports is writing about a study from researchers at Northeastern and Boston universities. They examined 57 IoT devices and found that every single one contained at least three dark patterns, and the average device had more than 20. So some of these, they're like, oh, your Fire TV home screen only shows you options for Amazon Prime videos up at the top, so you have to scroll down to find free stuff. They also talk about like the risks associated with forcing people to opt in to data gathering policies from like a smart speaker and making it difficult for them to find the ways to opt out. I would say Amazon with Amazon Madame nagging you, you actually have to go in and unclick a lot of things in your Madame app to stop some of the nagging. And what's worse is every now and again, I get, I think I've done it and then I get more nagging and I have to go in and click something completely new that they added. Yeah. That's a little irritating. I thought this was interesting too, because I've seen it in multiple apps where you get an option to say either accept cookies or reject cookies. The accept cookies, the one they want you to click is kind of like boldface highlighted. And it's like, oh yeah, consumer not thinking is going to click the the more prominent choice. Yes. They found that cameras, doorbells, and speakers had the greatest concentration of dark patterns Health devices, home automation devices, and smart hubs had the least. So, yay! This is not awesome. It's probably something we're aware of. Well, it's an industry-wide thing, and I don't just mean IoT industry. I mean, it's a software and social and, and web thing as well, but obviously it only pertains to us from an IoT perspective, but it's a, it's a bigger problem than just IoT. Yeah. Now, it does say the Amazon Ring video doorbell had 90 dark patterns of 19 different types. That is insane to me. Oh, goody. Wow. You win. You win. You had the most. And my favorite quote is, one nag in isolation is easy to ignore, but it's simple math to see how a constant barrage of nudges adds up to consumers' disadvantage. I'll buy it already. Fine. Yeah, you're I'll like, oh, it. I've been worn down. <laughs> and that 
I'm telling you, those ads on Madame A. Yeah, and that quote was from Joanna Ganawin, who is one of the study's lead authors and a doctoral student at Northeastern University. But yes, we, this is why we harp on this stuff, y'all. You're basically inviting someone into your home, and then they're using it to, like, nag you into, like, submission. And that's just, it's rude. <laughs> it's why I don't let anybody in my home. Oh, well, there you go. All right. News from Influx Data. Influx Data is a time series database in... Basically, this is not huge news. Well, it's huge news for them. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we're like, oh, it's new features because they are announcing the Influx DB 3.0 product suite. And they built a, basically a new engine on which all of this runs to make things faster, make running a time series database and using it faster and allowing for better sync and all kinds of things. So InfluxDB is built on that, what they call the InfluxDB IOX platform, and it'll be available in their cloud products, on the serverless side, and then also on the dedicated cloud side. Later this year, it'll be on its edge single node option, and then they'll have one for clustered on-premise databases. So that covers everything. Now, what will this allow? Oh, it allows you real-time queries, um, SQL language support. It apparently makes your story, your object storage cheaper. I don't, it's through compression. So compression does have compromises, but, you know, it does allow for more. I can add a little bit of what it adds. And what else? From like, from a dev standpoint. So they're adopting the Apache Parquet or Parquet file format, and that allows... Parquet. Like exactly. Butter. They <laughs> they actually, oh, I'm sorry, that will actually allow them to have like basically an infinite number of unique values in a database instead of being limited. And I, I like this, and I think people will too, even though you'll never see it. They're using Rust, the Rust programming language. And the reason that I say that's a good thing is because Rust enforces memory safety. So you can't like... So many exploits have to do with like memory overflows or memory buffer problems or the ability to address a different piece of memory than what the app is really looking to. So from a safety perspective, that is a good thing. Got it. Okay, so that is the latest from InfluxDB. And remember, time series data is essential because IoT data is time series data, which is like time and event, which is time temperature, time presence, time, whatever. So anyway, moving on, more fundings. It's a really hard environment for funding right now. So getting money is actually a big deal. A company called Hakimo, they are a company that is using computer vision and machine learning on video cameras for physical security. And so if we think about things like old school physical security was like, oh, presence detection, or maybe it was like, boxing out and creating zones, like what we just talked about with Aquara. This next generation of physical security they're promoting is the idea that you will actually be able to match people and things and objects to actually offer better security. So Hakimo has now raised $10 million. This was their second round of funding. It's an interesting IoT story because we are definitely adding more cameras to places. And as we do, we need to make them smarter in a scalable fashion and image recognition and computer vision help there. I like that this adds uh, detection for people who are in areas where they don't belong. 
Yeah, that's a very popular industrial kind of application. Yes. So, all right. Also, Span, the smart breaker box that we have talked about a ton on this show, they have actually raised a Series B round of $96 million, which is a heck of a lot of money. It brings their total funding to $186 million. And I think we had a question a couple of weeks ago from someone, and they was like, I don't know if I should trust a startup. I agree with you on that. It's hard to trust like a startup for like a three to $5,000 investment that's going to live on your home for hopefully 20 years. But they did just raise money. So yay. Maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable. Mm-hmm. All right. And in small kind of product news, let's hear what Wiz is doing. Oh, so Wiz, which is a, oh gosh, who, there's the, or I'll call them, yeah, Philips Hue. Right. They're like a tier below your Philips Hue bulbs, but from the same company. Um, their smart bulbs, which are Wi-Fi are now officially getting Matter support, which will open them up to HomeKit users. And that's nice because HomeKit products are typically more expensive. These are cheaper bulbs, quite honestly. So it's a nice lower cost option that's still fully functional for HomeKit people. Yeah. And we also have a new button. Normally, I talk about buttons, but I'm going to let you do this one because you found it. I found it. And actually, when I found it, I wasn't even sure it was a real product, but it is. And it is from Shelly. People we talk about all the time because they make great products. They have a new Shelly Blue, B-L-U, button one. So this is in addition to their existing button one. It's got the new blue name. It does come in blue or three other colors. It will cost you $14.90. Euros. Is that right? Alterco is the name of the company, and they're, I think, an Italian company. And so is it available in the U.S., though? Well, I can add it to my cart. (laughs) Okay, well, then maybe. (laughs) It almost looks like a tile or a Bluetooth tracker, but basically it has a button on it and a little um, speaker as well and a light alert. So you could press the button to do up to four preset actions or scenes. I think their envision is to carry around on a keychain or in your pocket, and you just have this roving button, this Bluetooth button in your home. Yeah, and it will control Shelly gear. Shelly has its own app where you can tie it to other platforms and it is bluetooth so do you need to have your phone or a hub um that's a good question it says full compatibility with home assistant and any other device supported by the bt home protocol so you probably need a hub in lieu of or in addition to your phone that makes sense but great i I know i have a hub that's bt home compatible so we all right and then nest we have news this is small yes it's small, but it's it's kind of good. Gets away from the whole, well, not, not really a dark pattern thing, but it's an annoyance thing. When you tell Google Home to do something, you almost always get a verbal response. It's so long. And maybe you don't want... I know, it's ridiculously long sometimes. Well, he'll be happy to know that you will now just hear a chime, if you want, for taking action on outlet switches, TV speakers, fans, blinds, and other devices. They're rolling out the support over time. So you may not get all of those with a chime right away, but given time, you will have a chime. Yay. Yeah. Amazon has had this forever. And Andrew, my husband is like, can we just switch back to Amazon because this is annoying? And it is. But now we finally get this and I don't have to switch back to Amazon and have her yell at me. Okay. Other final, final little bit of news is Yale's. They are... They're Yale Assure. Finally. Yeah, fine. Well, 
Is this finally? I mean, we're still waiting on the matter. They said by March. They said by March. Well, it's April. Yale Assure Lock 2 now has a Z-Wave module available. So with the Yale Assure Lock 2 that we've reviewed, we liked it, you have Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and now you can have Z-Wave if you spend $99.99 for the module, or you can buy the lock in various iterations for between what is $190 to $210. So yeah, depends on your fit and finish that you want and the size of your Bluetooth keypad. And well, and if it's a keypad with physical buttons, or if it's just like a not physical, but whatever. Passative or whatever. Not physical buttons. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is good. We're still waiting on that matter module, but this is awesome. And if you have infinite hundred dollar things to spend, you could buy the Z-Wave version and then come back later and get a matter if you want. All right. I'm betting most people held off. Yeah, I held off. Okay. Now it is time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline. Today's hotline is sponsored by Particle. Are you looking to fast track your IoT projects? Particle is offering free dev kits to new users if you're located in the US or Canada. Visit www.particle.io to claim your free dev kit today. And if you're like, what the heck is a particle? It is an IoT board with connectivity. So it's it's pretty cool. It has they have Wi-Fi, they have Bluetooth, they have cellular, and they're inside of a lot of things, believe it or not. Okay. We Love hearing from our listeners. So this is the part of the show where we hear from y'all. And if you would like to be entered to win, it's the Nanoleaf Essentials bulbs. Please give us a call at 512-623-7424. And I'm going to let y'all know, there's only like four people in the running right now. Those four people are now mad at me. Nobody wants to talk to us, apparently. Yeah, nobody has any questions. So give us a call and be entered to win because my gosh. My gosh, y'all. Okay, so this week, our question is from Eric, and it's actually about smart locks, matter smart locks. Let's hear it. Hey, guys, this is Eric in Virginia. I have a question about matter smart locks and whether or not they actually matter. So I'm currently switching over from the alarm system that came, um, was recommended with the house when I bought it. Um, and I'm switching over to a ring system that I'm putting in myself. And the uh, the wire cutters recommendation for a smart lock, I think it's ultra lock. They have make a Z-Wave version that can pair directly to Ring. So I guess my question is, if I can pair directly to Ring, does it really matter if it's a matter compatible lock, or is that uh, something that I can kind of bypass and go straight with that, or maybe just for future proofing, it makes sense. Anyway, just curious on your thoughts for that. Thanks a bunch. Love the show. It's a good question because we've obviously been talking about matter lately quite a bit. And Matter does support smart locks, but I don't know that Eric needs to make a change if he's going to go to a ring system. Yeah, so Eric, if you're going to a ring system and the ring secure system does have Z-Wave capability and you liked the wire cutter pick lock, which was the Ultralock U-Bolt Pro, now they have that in a couple iterations. There's a Wi-Fi iteration with built-in Wi-Fi. There's one with an adapter. There's one with Z-Wave. And there's one with... Bluetooth. Uh, Bluetooth. So if you know the lock you want, you can get the Wi-Fi version and it will work with your Ring Hub. Now, 
The reason to get the Z-Wave version would be because if your internet goes out and your power stays on, the Z-Wave would still work with your Ring Hub. But I would also say (laughs) if you want to switch out from your Ring Hub, if you have a Z-Wave version, it is going to be kind of a challenge to find a, you'll need a new hub for that to work with your existing smart home system. And like the Z-Wave is not built into things like Amazon's Madam A devices or the Google Home devices. Now, matter doesn't matter in this case, as you (laughs) so cleverly put it. I know we all say these things. So you really don't have to worry about matter here. If you want to worry about matter, Your best hope for getting it would be in the Wi-Fi version, but there's no guarantees there. Right, right. But I don't think Matter is a must-have on that. That's just me, personally. I mean, if if you're going to do Z-Wave, for example, yeah, you're going to need a hub, but you're going to also have everything locally. And it's unclear what you want to do with all of this. So I think a matter lock is compelling or a lock that works with other smart home systems because you can create routines to like a good night routine that will automatically lock all your doors at night, which is nice as opposed to wandering around checking them all. So if you wanted to do something like that, I don't know if you can do that through the ring. Actually, you can if you've got a Madam A system, you could create a routine with access to your lock. Yep. But it'd be through that system and it wouldn't be, I guess, as future proof. But maybe that's okay with you. This is probably like a three to five year kind of thing, longevity wise. So, all right. Well, hopefully that helped. And if you have any questions for us, give us a call at 512-623-7424. I would be especially interested in hearing what y'all want to know about the Acquire Sensor. Ha ha. Um, And that concludes this segment of the show. But please stay tuned for our guest, Daniel Raklowski, who is going to be talking about data gathering on smart appliances and what we we don't know about it. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is OnLogic. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is OnLogic, and I have James Floyd from OnLogic here to talk to us about hardware at the edge for robotics and AI. Hello, James. Can you give us a quick introduction? Yes. Hello, James Floyd here. I lead OnLogic's sales engineering team. We're fortunate to work closely with our customers and help solve their complex challenges with our edge and industrial computers. Okay. And what is OnLogic's history of building solutions at the edge? We've been at the edge really since it came about. We we saw the whole push to the cloud and then the reaction to come back to the edge. We've been fortunate to kind of grow grow up alongside the edge as it's been formulating over the past few years. So our customers come to us all the time with non-traditional installation environments. Some of them are stationary, some of them are mobile, and they're always forcing us to innovate and do things differently because our customers are all very different at the same time. So can you give us an example of a customer and how you've helped solve some of their technology challenges? 
A great example is Plus One Robotics. Um, and again, when you talk about the edge and you talk about innovation, robotics comes to mind. And Plus One Robotics is an extremely innovative organization. They had some very demanding technical requirements. They were hooking up a large number of Intel RealSense cameras, and those required a fair amount of bandwidth across the USB bus. And we had to help work with them to figure out the right way to uh, architect the system to support that load. And so these systems get installed on top of a robotics work cell and generally in an industrial uh, environment, right? Not the cleanest environment. This is not something where you can put a traditional desktop computer in. And so we worked very tightly with them and collaborated to come up with a great solution utilizing our K800 uh, rugged computer. Awesome. So one of the current buzzwords in the space is AI. And is that something I'll work with as well? Yes, we have lots of customers occupying this space, and it's really amazing to see this really emerge in front of us. We have customers coming in all the time using different AI-based applications. And so this is another place where you know Intel's latest gen Core i has lent itself extremely well to this environment. We have customers with varying workloads in the space, and Intel's 12th gen Core i processors give us a whole set of CPUs to really scale the CPU need depending on the customer's workload. Awesome. So if folks want to know more about OnLogic, where can they find you? Yeah, listeners can visit onlogic.com backslash IoT. There you can sign up for a hardware trial, download our ultimate guide to SCADA ebook, and browse our entire line of industrial computers. And again, you can find us at onlogic.com backslash IoT. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Daniel Roklowski, who is a writer at Consumer Reports. Hi, Dan, how are you? Hi, Stacey, I'm good. Excellent. Okay, so I've got you on this week, not just because you're one of my favorite smart home reporters, but because you recently wrote about how smart appliances and the companies that make them are using people's data, in possibly in ways they're they're not anticipating. So I wanted to ask you about that article and what you found out. Yeah, it was very eye-opening. We found that manufacturers are collecting a ton, and I mean a ton, of data about how consumers use these appliances. Everything from when they open and close their refrigerator door to the cycles they select on their washers and dryers, and even you know personal information like your address, your date of birth, your zip code. So there's really a ton of data that these brands are collecting and consumers just aren't really aware of it and aren't really concerned about it that much either. Yeah, well, I'm concerned about it. So what led to you writing this article? Yeah, so it came about during the pandemic, I want to say it was the beginning of 2021. And smart appliances have been slowly becoming more and more of a thing. Um, They're taking up more and more retail space at, at stores. You know, we felt we were really uniquely positioned to evaluate appliances for privacy and security because we already do a ton of privacy and security testing for electronics, you know, everything from smart speakers to security cameras to Wi-Fi routers and laptops. And we were getting more and more of these smart appliances in our labs. And so the timing just felt right to grab a few of these large appliances and test them for privacy and security. Excellent. Yeah. And we'll talk later about how y'all do that. But first, why are connected devices so hot right now? Why are they happening? Why do manufacturers want them? Why do consumers want them? So for manufacturers, I would say it's definitely about the data 
you know, data essentially equals money. <laughs> um, they can they can sell it. They can use it to serve you ads. They can use it for their own market research and to figure out how they can improve their products and get you to buy more products. And for consumers, I would say there is a lot of convenience to these connected devices. And even with large appliances, you know, I spoke to one consumer who said he actually really liked getting notifications when his dishwasher was done running and said that, yeah, he could live without it, but he kind of compared it to, you know, your remote start on a car which is not necessary, but really convenient and not having it in his words is kind of a hassle. So there's definitely real convenience and a real want on the part of consumers for these products. I will say there are two times when I'm really super stoked about having connected appliances. One is like when things go wonky when there's an issue. I'm like, oh, can you like just look at the log files and be like, boom, this is the problem. I'll send something out. So that's actually a huge value add, although it's a value add that you never really want to have to access. And then the other is software updates that change the performance of my appliance. And I have a connected GE oven and I picked this because actually it was UL certified for cybersecurity reasons and because it had all the features I wanted. That The cybersecurity aspect was actually secondary to the right size and distribution of burners on the stove and oven. But I got this like cool turkey mode software update and everybody who listens to the podcast knows I freaking love my June oven because I'm getting constant updates to make me cook my food better. So those seem like huge value adds to me. And I guess then the question becomes, what am I giving up? So you've mentioned some of the potential things that companies are doing with that data. Do you want to go into more detail about what you're seeing with terms of data from the device, data from the apps? Yeah, so I will say it, we saw those same benefits and, and we did try to focus on that a lot in the story because there are genuinely good things that these appliances can do, such as you mentioned, you know, making the repair and service process faster and, and easier. But um, in terms of the data, we couldn't really see what data was being collected, which is, you know, that's a good thing. <laughs> that means that they're using encryption and their security is good. We also didn't find any security vulnerabilities in the 12 appliances we looked at, so which was also great. But we did ask uh, these brands about what kinds of data they're collecting. And surprisingly, the only one that was really forthcoming was Kenmore. And so they were the ones that clued us into the fact that, oh, yeah, we're looking at the energy usage and what cycle you're using and when you open and shut the door on the appliance. All these bits of data really can paint a very detailed portrait of your own behavior that these manufacturers can then use. And they can create data profiles from that data, which we actually did find LG and Samsung doing. They can even sell that data, which is just extremely problematic. Aside from the actual data collection issues, just the very connected nature of these appliances can create issues. While we did mention that, you know, the service process can be a lot better, you also run into some right to repair issues because it's up to the manufacturer to choose to share their diagnostic tools with other repair services. Right now, if, you know, your refrigerator breaks, you usually your first step is to call the brand and try to have them service it. But oftentimes our own research shows that you get better service and a better, more affordable repair if you go with an independent shop. But if that independent shop doesn't have access to those same diagnostic tools that a big company like Whirlpool or GE has, then you're out of luck and 
that manufacturer is able to corner that very lucrative repair market. Now, I will say we did hear from GE that they are sharing their diagnostic tools with third-party repair services. So that was really nice to hear. But other brands were not forthcoming about that. And this, this to me was really interesting. You reached out to five big brands, Samsung, LG, GE, Kenmore, and Whirlpool. So five big brands, and we've actually had people from almost all of those companies on the show. And were you surprised at both what they told you, and you mentioned this was a two-year product, how did their responses change over time? So initially, they were, you know, willing to answer some questions more broadly about, you know, their data privacy practices, but they very quickly sort of uh, shut me out and declined to answer further questions. The only company that was really forthcoming was actually GE. I was able to have interviews with them and they answered a lot of questions. Uh, they even told me at one point how many appliances they have connected in the field. And that was back in 2021. And it was about a million connected large appliances in consumers' homes. They then, of course, uh, later on in my reporting process, declined to update that number because they viewed it now as proprietary information since no other brands were sharing similar numbers. Mm. But um, it, they were still very forthcoming and willing to answer questions, which was nice. That makes me feel better about connecting my GE oven. Maybe it makes me feel also better about not connecting my LG washer. And what about consumers? I, I thought this was interesting. You found that they're also implementing incentives. I, they'll call it incentives, maybe. I would call it coercing people into connecting their appliances. Because you don't actually have to connect a connected appliance for it to work. So what are they doing to get people on board? So yeah, you would think you don't need to connect your appliance to get it to work, but we actually found that, in, at least in the case of GE, you actually do. So for their smart ovens, they have a convection roast mode, and it is a physical button on the controls of many of their ovens. But in order to actually enable that mode, you first have to connect the oven to Wi-Fi for it to run a software update that they claim essentially gives it like the most up-to-date cooking algorithm for, for that mode. And this was just seemed ridiculous to us because as our test engineer for ovens pointed out, convection as a feature in ovens predates Wi-Fi by like decades. <laughs> so just the very idea that you need Wi-Fi in order to use convection was just silly. That was like the only real extreme case that we saw. By and large, you know, these appliances will still work. Even those GE ovens, I believe on their basic, you know, like baking or broiling modes will just work as is. But it was definitely uh, a surprise for us. Well, and I would say there's an additional surprise for connected devices, which is when those software updates happen, sometimes it changes the way you've historically used your device, which is a little disconcerting for something like a washing machine, because you're like, I used to just press this button and this button and it started and now I've got something new. Yeah, that was a big theme of the piece, um, was just this whole idea of consumer expectations being upended, because, you know, these are... Appliances are things that we've used now for about a century, if not a little longer than that. And you expect your refrigerator to keep your food cold and your washer to, you know, clean your clothes. But you don't expect to be able to check your refrigerator from the supermarket thanks to internal cameras or receive an alert that 
your laundry's done. Those are just novel features that these appliances have never had before. We've talked about some of the fears of all the data collection. What are some of the other fears associated with connected appliances? Some other issues we've seen are really that the connectivity of these appliances can impact their lifespan um, and the expectations of their lifespan in, in interesting ways. So consumers expect large appliances to last upwards of a decade or more. Whereas, you know, with connected devices like speakers and cameras and things and, and laptops, you expect, you know, maybe a few years, five years, depending on what it is. And so now you're marrying the connectivity of those products with something that is supposed to last for a decade. And you just, you, you run into issues there. Consumers expect these things to last that long, but it's unclear if manufacturers do. A lot of them would not be clear and upfront about how long they were going to support their appliances. GE, <laughs> as forthcoming as they, they were through this whole thing, said they do plan to support their products for a, about a decade, about that, uh, that expected amount of time, but others were not clear. And so we don't know if they'll support them, if they do, what that support will look like. Because, you know, it's not just about new features. It's really about security patches and, and bug fixes, things that will keep these products safe and secure in your home that whole time. So that's really a big problem that really we need to see some, some legislation or some standards to help solve. Yeah, the UK has drafted legislation around that. Unfortunately, it's like five years after. If you have a connected device, you're, you must support it for five, up to at least five years. Which is good. I mean, that's the start. And it does, I think, make your job harder as a tester because I think that is a pertinent question to ask, like getting new features for these devices. Like how long can I expect to get like the new cooking modes? And then probably a longer term, how long can I expect to get security updates? Have y'all added that to your reviews process? So we are working towards that. We have hundreds of appliances in our ratings on our website. So it's it's a um, it's a big endeavor, <laughs> but we are working towards that goal of eventually having uh, data privacy and data security ratings for large appliances, just as you'll see on our site for other connected devices like routers and laptops and phones and the like. Awesome. Okay. I am so curious how y'all tested the data privacy aspects. I know you obviously reached out to companies. You had this great stat in your story about appliances sending out anywhere from 3.4 megabytes to 19 megabytes of data back to the manufacturers per week. Where is all that coming from? Sure. So we base our testing on uh, something called the Digital Standard, which CR and a few other organizations helped create. You can actually check it out at thedigitalstandard.org. For the privacy portion, we have analysts who actually do what no one does and read through all the terms of service and privacy policies and other documents to see what manufacturers are claiming about how they use your data and whether they sell it and, and whatnot. For security, it's, it's a multifaceted approach. So we, of course, look for good security practices, things like using encryption or authentication, but we also do penetration testing to look for security vulnerabilities. And we also just monitor network traffic over time. And so for this particular project, we called it our week in the life 
of of appliances and uh, we monitor the traffic for a week and use the appliances once per day over that week just to see how much data they're sending back to manufacturers and that's uh, how we got that very uh, eye-opening stat yeah I, I mean I check all my th- I, I check everything against my fire wallet to see if they're doing anything weird but and sometimes they are and then finally if I find this scary, Or maybe I'm just like, well, I would like to know what kind of data my appliances are sharing with manufacturers. What should we do? So I think consumers should really weigh the benefits of these products against the risks. There are people who really enjoy the connectivity of these products and enjoy using them. But you have to decide, is the trade-off worth it? Is it worth it for me to also hand over all this data about myself to this manufacturer. And for some people, they might be perfectly fine with making that trade-off, but others might not. The nice thing is that even though these appliances are so widely available, I believe they now account for about 40% of appliances offered at retail. By and large, you don't have to connect them to the internet to use them. And we actually found that most people who own them don't connect them to the internet. So, you know, you still have that choice and you're not shut out of the market, which is good. But otherwise, you're really stuck. You know, you if you want connectivity in the absence of some real, you know, privacy legislation in this country, you have to just be willing to give up your data. And so that brings the next obvious question, which is what should the government be doing? What if we if we ever get a privacy law, what should we focus on when it comes to data from appliances? So, I mean, as as you said, yeah, we really need a federal data privacy law that needs to just make it abundantly clear what manufacturers can do with your data. You know, we'll see if if uh, lawmakers actually put some real limits on that, but it'd be great if they could at least get them to be transparent and upfront about what data they're collecting and what they do with it. I think an IoT nutrition label would be great for these products. We already have an energy guide label on appliances that is, you know, very transparent about how much energy they use. It's not a stretch of the imagination to have something very similar for uh, connectivity and just disclosing what data they collect and what they do with it. I agree. And then as consumers, hopefully we'll pay attention, which maybe. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Stacy. It was a pleasure. Okay, so thanks everyone for listening to this week's Internet of Things podcast. I really appreciate it, as does Kevin. And if you want to find out more information on the Internet of Things, you can find it at my free weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. You can sign up for that at www.stacyoniot.com slash newsletter. Or you can just visit the website for all of those stories published a little bit later. Thanks for listening and have a great week.